This is your coffee break. Hi friends, I am back for another episode of Coffee Break with you and I am so pleased to have here as a guest today on Coffee Break, Rashawn Foster. Rashawn is an avid listener and advocate of the Right Now podcast and I am just so pleased that she contacted me. Uh, Rashawn, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yes, well, uh, I consider myself a brazen careerist and so I've had, I don't know, like probably more than two dozen jobs in my life, but they've all come back to my first love, which is writing. Interestingly enough, I've begun to take on a hobby called anthroponomy, which is a subcategory of onomastics. Anthroponomy is the study of the history of the origin of names, and onomastics is the study of the history of names, but on a broader sense of geography, birth names and also just business names and things like that. As an introduction to myself, my name is Rashan. Uh, the R-E-S-H, which is something I found out within the past year, is Hebrew for rabbi, or spiritual counselor. And O-U-N-N, which this is where I say God's got jokes. O-U-N-N is when you unscramble it and put it in the right you know, order. It's now. Someone has said high priestess of names that I accept that. But the O-U-N-N, because it's unscrambled, that's why I said guys got jokes. When I was a little girl, I used to love to play with my words. And so I was a writer even then and also an editor. And I used to make crossword puzzles. And, okay, so I'm 47 years old. So you do not look like it. You look so young. <laughs> I know. I've been told 27. I'm like, yay, okay, I'm doing All something. All right. <laughs> um, <laughs> And years ago, when there were lithographs and you had to like take your hand and like roll the little crank or whatever to get copies printed. So I used to actually hand create word puzzles, the little crosswords and word searches and things like that. So I had a huge love for words, spelling bees. If I wanted to know anything, I always had a dictionary or encyclopedia or an encyclopedia of encyclopedias near me. Um, thank God for the internet now, because anytime I don't know something, I'm like, oh, that sounds exciting. Let me go study it. So then you know how you get on the internet, and you're like hyperlinked to like five other millions of things. Um, so yeah, I've always had a love for words, writing poetry, reciting poetry. I had a lot of classes in English and psychology and sociology and things like that, and I just loved that. So uh, that my mother and my grandmother and great uncle and other people in my family were my benefactors in college. I said, well, before I take them on a spin, let me figure out exactly what I'm going to do with an English degree. And then I decided I was going to try my luck at advertising copywriting. Mm -hmm. So I called a couple of friends. I said, what can I do with a degree at, you know, in advertising? And this is how naive I was, right? So not knowing that, well... They have to write scripts, they have to write concepts, they have to write broadcast, print, ads, and everything. So, um, again, I called my friends and she introduced me to somebody and I worked at an advertising agency. They hired me and I wrote some taglines for a radio spot. Now, mind you, I did not know what a copywriter was two weeks before they hired me. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's how a lot of us get our first jobs, though. We're like, what, a job? Okay. <laughs> right. So I went, I was like, oh, this is pretty cool to be around other creative people. And we're listening to music because we have to match the music to the scripts and everything. So that's how I got. Um, and then my family, when I told them the plan, and I actually had the job when I got 
you know, gave them the plan of what I was going to do. So it seemed to be, okay, well, that's fine. She can do something other than teach. Um, so I still love and adore and advocate teaching. However, I'm more of an educator and sharing of information instead of teaching in the classroom. So that's pretty much how I've gotten everything that I've ever <laughs> done, actually, by listening, reading a book, <laughs> and then just saying, hey, let's just go ahead and let's try and do it. So fast forward to now, I am writing a little bit of everything, and I've written everything from poems to lists of things in my journals, uh, and journal writing has been therapeutic for me. The um, Out My Right Mind started in around 2009. Can you tell us a little bit of background about that? Yeah, so a lot of these things I'm just like now finding out because when I was focused, and you hear my dog in the background. Hi, puppy. Hi, puppy. In 2009, I had lost my job as a communication specialist writer. And my daughter, bless her heart, she uh, introduced me to Facebook. Um, I had just bought a house in 2008, then lost my job in 2009 just got a house and I'm about to lose the house. And so what am I going to do? So, you know, when you lose your job, you lose your house, you lose, um, I lost, I should say, part of my self-identity is like I'm a writer. So when I lose a job as a writer, what does that say about me, my self-esteem, my confidence even in writing? And I have this Facebook account because I end up becoming a seclusive person. I went into like this crazy, mass, severe depression. And then through the power of Facebook, I started to reach out to people and just explain like what I was going on and feeling like I didn't want to be out in the world, but having social media as an as a way to be connected to people. And so because I've always considered journal writing therapy for me, I just started doing it online. I didn't feel like the pen and paper fit for me at the time. Um, and so I just started posting stuff on Facebook. And what ended up happening was that, you know, through the immediate gratification, the likes and the people commenting, but then people began to inbox me, applauding me and saying, thank you so much for your post. That was really inspirational and telling me that they were feeling the same way, but they didn't have the words to explain what they were feeling. And so that made me want to do it even more. Um, I did receive some backlash, however, because some of the posts were also discussing the dark periods of, you know, being in home and and going through self-identity stuff. I call that phase my Job moment because I had lost not only the house and the job, but I had also lost family members as well, my father and my grandfather um, in 2007, three weeks apart. Then every year since then, I had lost you know, a significant family member. And so just the writing of that and what it feels like to go through these, you know, traumatic life experiences. And we know that death is a part of life. We get it. However, that doesn't console you at the time um, when you're going through the phases and, you know, wanting to touch a family member, pick up the phone and call. So writing for me just really, it Facebook saved my life. It was some really, really dark, dark moments, but that people liked that I was sharing. And that's what, you know, Out My Right Mind really started off as. Tell me a little bit more about, and I can also just kind of let you keep, you're, you have a wonderful narrative thread that you're going through here. So this is awesome. <laughs> I actually work for sort of an advertising agency right now. 
And I'm always curious about the things that we want to write and the things that we need to write for work. And like just the healing that came out when you were writing for yourself finally. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that writing, I used my poetry as an entryway into advertising copywriting. And so that was um, interesting because there is the creative and then there is the finance. You have to be able to write creatively. And so I had that part of it and the use of words uh, in prose and how, you know, the alliteration and that captures people's attention. And um, so you use the mechanics of creative writing, definitely, um, to tell the story and to use the right words for, you know, to create the images, to paint the pictures and things like that. Um, and then what also happened, because I used to do spoken word then too. And so what happened is that that paradigm shift writing for corporate and I say this, I used to say this, I don't say it anymore, but I used to say ba- it, writing commercial bastardized my creativity because then there's the, um, uh, the approval processes. There's the, you're writing for a, um, you're writing for an account and they have specifications. They have, you know, we have the creative briefs. So it tells us all the demographics and it tells us, um, yeah, all that stuff. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Those I'm familiar with. So there's, there, there's the layers of what needs to happen. And that takes precedence over the creative part. It began to be really, really hard to be a poet again. One of the other things, though, that I did appreciate about the ad, working in the ad agency is that it did give me structure to writing that cross between, you know, when you're writing uh, academically and writing reports and things like that. So that was something. And people, you know, when you say that you're a writer, they automatically, and particularly me, because I'm when people see me, they automatically know, oh, my God, you're an artist. I go, yeah. That's kind of nice. (laughs) It is. And then, you know, the host, not the stigma, but the stereotype of what an artist does and what a writer does. People think that we're, that you're not going to make a living with writing, that you can make $65,000 a year as a freelance writer, according to Robert Bly's book back in the, what, 90s or something. Mm -hmm. That's the book that I got when I got into advertising. I went, let me read this book Mm -hmm. and let me get my stopwatch. Okay, I can do this. (laughs) (laughs) That was my first assignment. Okay, I can do this. And so that that corporate writing validated me as a writer as well, that you do spend your time thinking for a long period of time before you actually put pen to paper or put your fingers to the keys. It is rewarding to be able to, to live your life as an artist, whatever artist that you want to be, but to live your life as a writer and then to say, yes, I, I, I'm a writer. Oh, well, really? And then the looks and oh, I'm a corporate writer. And then it's like, oh, okay, what do you write? And then you go on the list and you go, wow, okay, yeah, I've written those commercials or I've written that print ad. That is, is rewarding. The, the depression had gotten so bad that I was in the bed uh, some days, not all the time, but some days I was just exhausted, tired, in the bed 12 to 14 hours straight, you know, holding my urine. Uh, you don't have to edit that because it's just real. Uh, not bathing, not eating, just really, really like going through something. So it was like one of the darkest phases in my life, Job moment. But then I found that when you go through that type of depression, you also 
I called it my womb stage where I went right back in and did a, so much inner reflection. And so again, that's how the out my right mind started to. Also, what happened during that period of time, my best friend who we met when we were doing HIV prevention work in Detroit, and she's a native Detroiter, but she lives out in California. Her name is Imani Williams, and she's um, a social activist, feminist, journalist, and she was out in California. So she's seeing my posts, and she was like, and we call each other Sissy. Sissy, you come out here and you get you some sun. And so I said, okay, because she saw my post and she was, she was not liking what she was seeing. Mm. So I went out there and stayed out there with her and another friend for like three months. But that reinvigorated me to be out there to, in the sun. But I also started reading poetry again. And there's something about reading poetry away from home in a different atmosphere, in a different environment with different people listening. And they don't know who you are. So it's when they give you inspiration, I mean, you never want to take it for granted anyway, whether you're at home or whether you're wherever else. Um, but it was just something about the atmosphere there. So I just continued to out my right mind even more and uh, came back home to another passing. And then some friends of mine that I went to high school with, uh, they were on the board of Broadside Press, which is now Broadside Lotus Press. Broadside Press specifically was founded by Dudley Randall and is the oldest African-American press in the United States. And Lotus Press, uh, Naomi Long Magid, who was also Detroit's Poet Laureate, connected. But back then, before they actually merged, uh, my friends said, hey, why don't you put some of your stuff on our website? And I was like, are you kidding me? Broadside Lotus Press have published works by Maya Angelou, Sonia Sanchez, Haki Matabuti, Dudley Randall, Gwendolyn Brooks. I mean, some major, major people. So I'm like, you know, am I that good? <laughs> I'm that kind of good, you know. And the whole premise of Broadside Lotus Press um, is to publish authors and poets who tell the stories of the everyday experiences of African-American life. And it has, you know, its own backstory. It has its own flavor. It has its own style and colors and textures. Um, and every culture and every writer does. So there's just something about that experience, you know. And so I just felt like, wow, cool. So right now, out my right mind is still on Facebook. However, uh, I have been blessed to have people who I am merging with, interconnecting with, who have followed me for some time, and they're encouraging me to make it a podcast. So I'm like, okay, cool. So now that I know Sarah Werner, I'm like listening, like I'm listening to format now. I'm like, okay, <laughs> ask this question. And then, um, yeah, the um, whole out my right mind experience. I mean, it's kind of like this web of stuff. There are things that I also want to further explore about writing. They, we always talk about writing to get published. And what if you don't want to get published? Or what if I've got so much content. I've got 40 or close to 40 journals that I've kept. And like my whole life story is in all of these books. And like how long would it take to edit all of that? Um, so can it be turned into a memoir? That's cool. But I really, really like the idea of talking about the writing process. That's why I appreciate what you do so much. 
I was fortunate enough that in 2012, when the foreclosure finally became final, I actually had to move out. Uh, I moved in with a family member for a short period of time, but my best friend of 27 years gave me the keys to her home and said, I want you to have some peace. I, that's a whole nother, like I could tell you that forever. And so the keys to her home is her family home. There are five generations that have lived in this house. And the house, I moved from North Rosedale Park, which is a pretty affluent area in Detroit, to Detroit's historical North End. And the North End, I refer to it as the garden that grew Motown. The across the alley from me, the house is no longer there, but Barry Gordy's lot where the family where the family house used to be is across the alley from me. So I'll stand in the um, bathroom window from time to time and just like, oh, okay, so that's where the magic began. And so I kind of like draw that magic in. <laughs> yeah. Are you still there now then? Or Yep, I'm still here oh. now. And in order to push me through my job moment, because I, advertising and thinking and campaign themes. So I came up with the campaign, pers- personal campaign theme for me, which is Hip and Zen in the North End. And there is something magical that I experienced when uh, experienced when I walk over here and walk through the neighborhood. The neighborhood in the North End is very, it's unique in its history and legend, like Oakland Avenue is um, a place that was really, really, let's say, jumping and very, it thrived. It had a lot of, it was a commercial and retail strip, restaurants, bars, butcher shops, you know, everything that you could possibly imagine in, you know, a downtown urban setting. However, the 67 riots and uh, white flight and some of the other social political stuff, gentrification, things like that, began to influence the financial stability of the community. And that's not unlike any other, um, that particular part, the dilapidation of the neighborhood is something that is consistent in other pockets in Detroit. Mm-hmm. You know, you may have heard about it through, you know, the news and things like that. But the one thing that I can say about the North End is that there are people who are here, residents who are here, five generations, sometimes some more, Um, that really are committed to sustaining the legacy, sustaining the arts, because it has been a cultural arts place. Uh, The Apex Bar and Phelps Lounge um, and some other bars and restaurants have been legendary for having the R&B and jazz and blues legends here. Ike and Tina Turner, the staple singers, John Lee Hooker. Milton Little Richard, B.B. Uh, King. So and it's just flourishing. So that energy is still here. So I'm walking through the neighborhood now. Unfortunately, you know, the school systems don't give you the civics education about your own neighborhood. A right. Lot. It's like, well, you want us to learn American government and civics and I don't know what's relevant to where I live. So um, and that was in 2012, 2013. I listened to Spirit. I was driving one day and Spirit said, here, go to this community development corporation. So I go in there, I meet this woman. She said, here, are you a poet? So I laugh because I'm going, yeah, okay, what does this mean? I'm like, something special is about to happen. So it's a, a flyer to go to a meeting and I reconnect with somebody who I call my brother in love. His name is Ulysses. And so Ulysses and I see other people there and I go, I know I am in the right place. And what it was, it was a community arts festival that was being planned. 
I was like, oh, my God, what can I contribute? So as a writer, I contributed, but not so much the writing aspect as it was the conceptual, like, well, what do you think about this? What do you think about, like, oh, my God, we should do this or we should do that. So it was like the ideas. So always ideas before writing. We then had this really, really great community arts festival in the North End on Oakland Avenue in the Oakland Avenue Community Garden and Greenhouse. And it was specifically for the community. We had a successful event. And then there were us who created then the Oakland Avenue Artist Coalition. So I'm also one of the founding board members of the uh, coalition. And then just continuing to write. So then it was like, well, out my right mind now is being written in Hip and Zen in the North End because I turned the personal campaign into the theme for the house. Artists and residents, what I wanted to do over in North Rosedale Park to have a community of artists in the North End. That's why I'm not like all cringing, like, eh, okay, fine. I lost that house. My daughter said, well, mom, if you bought, you got that house, got to give you another one. Okay, so now I have another house and I have the community. Uh, there's a community of people who we rally together, we assist each other. And now I also have a jazz den. I've had performers come, live musicians come into the house. And so I've had one. I'm having another one this Saturday. And hopefully it'll turn into having a writer's den as well as a lot of my friends are writers. I love this. I love what comes through. What I've heard come through for you so much is this theme of community. You have your Facebook community. You have this community of family and, and, and trauma within that family and, and tragedy. But then you also have this, I feel like, healing group of people, of artists and fellow writers who really continue to lift you up. And I, I love writing communities. Can you tell me more about that? It is where it is interesting because, you know, when you think of community, you think of like everybody coming together. It's more like branching out. This is the one part, too, that when I was writing corporate, that everyone there, you know, there are pockets where people when I was actually in school, we will workshop our writing, the poems and things like that. So those are things that I kind of like didn't do. So some things were like pushed aside. There are writing communities here, the Motown Writers Network, Broadside Press, the Detroit Poetry Society, Poet Society. There are different pockets that I still haven't fully taken advantage of because I have been secluded um, and a recluse. And don't feel sad for me because being a recluse is kind of okay. Yeah, no, totally. (laughs) Empathic, intuitive, too. So it's kind of like, yeah, I go out and talk to the humans and then I come back home where it's sacred and quiet. (laughs) I I get that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, But that... The writing communities do exist for me. I just haven't tapped into them enough, I think. Writing is so personal, and particularly the kind of writing that I do, mostly, most of it is really therapeutic writing, and it's in my journal or it's on Facebook. And so, you know, you never want to judge or critique someone's emotions because that's what you're really doing, which is different when you're, you know, doing a, writing a script or something, and people can say, okay, well, here's a technique that you may want to try so that I would be able to merge some of those things, like to really write something and then give it to somebody and then they and I'm OK with them editing. People ask me here, can you read my work? And I'm going, oh, no, 
do you understand what you're asking me? <laughs> and then what does that mean when you want me to read your work? Do you want me to read it for content? Do you want me to do a line edit? Do you want me to tell you how I feel as a result of reading your work? What emotions came up for me? There's people, you know, the lay person doesn't understand when you hand something over to be edited. It's like there's like, what, 10 different ways to edit something. Like I'd rather I'll proofread it in grammar and typos and stuff like that. Yeah. You know, but I'm like, no, you don't want me to edit but I was I like to sit with someone and talk about and just kind of facilitate rather than to be an editor if I were to do a book the first one would probably be my name wires which I think that's the one that I wrote about when I emailed you yeah yeah name and then the first piece was my daughter how my daughter got her name uh, and that goes back to the anthroponymy stuff like you know the the idiom live up to your name what would it be like if everybody knew the definition of their name and then to actually live up to that definition. Again, we're talking about the energy of words in your name. Your name is, is a calling. People call your name. When you think about then the word vocation, the root word is vocare, to call. What is your calling in life? What is your purpose in life? Well, yeah, when you write things down, they actually come true. It's that energy. It is magic. And then it comes in like right now in my kitchen, the walls that were put up, the paneling in the walls, and it's like one of those, I guess, 60s or 70 things. There's, I don't know what it's called. It's not laminate. It's some kind of material, whatever. But I found out a year after I moved, I looked at it and I started filling the walls. I went, this feels like dry erase board. So I got a dry erase marker and I started writing on the walls and I, I said, oh my God, this is freaking exciting. Yeah, so I write on the walls and things just happen. I like... I write on there and then I take pictures of it and I just erase. And I, I got that idea from my friends at Broadside because they have uh, a dry erase board. But I've got like four walls. <laughs> I love that. Oh, my gosh. I love that. Yeah. There's something yeah. gorgeous about, I don't know, like making that part of your home, like surrounding yourself with these words and like building, I don't know, building up your, your environment with these words. I'm kind of curious also, I want to know what you're writing now and like, any connection that you see between the poetry that you had been writing and maybe you still are writing and sort of this therapeutic journaling? Is there any crossover there? Are they two different things? Yeah, there's definitely crossover. Um, what I'm writing now is just thoughts, plans about what I'm going to do next. Like the hip and zen, like I have an opportunity for it to become an artist in residence. And so the business planning, the drafts and things like that. So I'm doing that part. It's like creative writing. I'm creating my own vision of how I want to live my life. The out my right mind that I go and actually look at this collection of Facebook posts. Uh, those are the outlines, I guess you could say, or the writing prompts of what a blog and what a podcast would be. So it's just arranging them and saying, okay, hey, somebody who's going to set up my blog. Okay, so this is what we're going to do. Yeah. <laughs> so I've got content, five years of content. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> that's some of the things that's, you know, that's coming up. But there's definitely um, the blend because, like I said, you know, right out my right mind is basically writing props. Like I could be on there and like, there's something that I might read somebody else's post or listen to a podcast and I go, oh my God, that's something that I feel, you know, fired up about. And I get the pen and I get, you know, something right or it's stuck in my head because I know for a fact that that's something I need to write about. And so it's just a matter of fleshing it out 
so that it actually makes more sense. When I post, I always put in parentheses unedited streams of consciousness or unedited streams of writing. Because journal writing is not where you want to stifle any of the thought Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. with punctuation and it makes sense. It's literally like a stream of consciousness writing, which you just start writing and sometimes it doesn't make sense. It's just, you know, you splat it from your head. It's just like taking a paintbrush and dipping in the paint and you just throw it up there. So that's what the posts look like, you know, a lot of times. So they literally are unedited. So that I would compile them, let's say it is in a book, that some of them may just stay unedited. Some of it may actually broaden itself, expand into poetry. And some of it may actually be recorded. I don't know. I have like friends that are musicians and one of them in particular saying, so the world needs to hear these stories. And what would it sound like, you know, with music in the background? My favorite genre of music is jazz and specifically the avant-garde and, you know, and this, so that's why out my right mind, when I started listening more into jazz and actually studying jazz, uh, the history of jazz and that it has those African polyrhythms in it and the field hollers and everything about the American experience through African-American eyes, that it's like, oh, my writing is that, too, because there is the writing through my eyes and experiences of things that I've gone through. So, you know, what would it be like to like mesh those things together and just like, wow. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. So it's, it's exciting. It's, it's literally like in that thought phase. And so it's like, okay, so now it's time to execute. Do you feel like you got a lot of that entrepreneurial spirit, like from the advertising agency? I got it from the advertising agency, the creative juices, the structure, again, because you have the creative department. So it's like me as the creative director. You have these different roles that you play in the creative department. You have, I'm not a graphics designer by any means, but because I've hung out with graphic designers, like I know how to have a reasonably intelligent conversation, photography the same way, because we used to look at the director's reels, I did casting, so I have all of that that I look at and go, okay, I can use that now for me. The entrepreneurial spirit actually has come from different places. My paternal grandfather, that side of the family, my dad's side of the family came from the east end of Asheville, North Carolina. Mm. And the east end of Asheville, North Carolina is the area historically that was where African Americans were as a result of segregation. Mm. So that my family heritage on that side, my grandfather was a self-made entrepreneur. Uh, his father was an entrepreneur. Uh, the grocery stores and my grandfather owned a motel here at one time, the town motel. And he owned the grocery store way before uh, I was born. But the motel, I remember. So I remember my grandfather. And unfortunately, and I don't know, and this is me talking. This is the story that I made up, not necessarily a story that's true. <laughs> So I'm second oldest grandchild. I'm a girl. So we don't teach girls how to balance books and take them into, and particularly a motel. You don't take the girls into the motel. So there's this, you know, idea of I watched it from afar, but I know what hard work looks like. I know the diligence that it takes. It's been role modeled for me. Now it's time for me to actually take action and pull, okay, well, what would my grandfather do kind of thing? On my mom's side of the family, our 
matrilineage is that we come from wives of preachers, wives of coal miners, daughters of coal miners, and that my grandmother and her her siblings were, you know, came up here. And both sides of my family came up north, you know, through the Great Migration when all the blacks came up to Detroit, uh, Chicago, uh, New York, Midwest, because of the industries, the factories, and particularly the automotive industry to work in the plants and things. And so on my mom's side of the family, that's what happened. My grandmother was a teacher's assistant, but my grandmother was very, very um, astute with her money and astute with her time. And she was very active in the community, Concord Street Block Club, for example. Um, but that there's this leadership that I have access to. And so that they are now ancestors. I call their names all the time. <laughs> and I keep their pictures surrounded, you know, in the home up front. And I talk to them all the time. Like, okay, Grandma, I know, yeah, okay, I probably shouldn't have spent money on that. <laughs> you know, so those kinds of things, like the direction, the leadership. I'm invoking all of that through their names, calling their names and remembering what I need to know in order to stay on tangent. And that I also surround myself, you know, with people who are also in leadership capacity. Because I've gone through the Job moment, there's a there's a paradigm shift that you go through. There's like some amnesia. You know, you go into the womb state, so you come out of the womb state, and you're going, okay, so I know I'm still this person. Some of the stuff has gone away, and some of the stuff is in memory. What do I need to pull out of my memory to strengthen me in order to go forward? So all of these different things, like that I was a leader in different capacities, now I have to remember that stuff and I have to use those muscles again. That self-discipline, that's something that I have to work on, but that I have access to it, that's going to help me a lot. You, you know so much about the history of your family. Not everybody has that, and I'm just a little envious that you, that you have that. We go through so many generations, and, and at least with my family, I have no idea what my grandparents did. And, and that's really amazing that you have that. And you know that, the, that these lives they've led have become part of your life. You spoke earlier of vocation and calling. Mm -hmm. And do you feel like that's kind of built into your, to your family history? It kind of sounds like. And then what do you feel like your calling is? I do believe that is worthy to explore your name because your name is called. I mean, think about every how, every use in life, every situation, every transaction that you make in this world is based on your name. You sign your name on documents. You give your name. I think it's really worthy for people to really look at the definition of, of the name, to, and particularly if you're lost. You call your name. And when you answer, what are you going to answer to? What is your role in life? What is your purpose, your passion, your soul mission, life purpose, all of that? It very well could be in your name. And yes, I do believe Rashawn Lanise Foster. Foster is a name that I live up to, that I am a person who is nurturing, that I am a person who, if I see or hear of a friend that has an idea, I'm just ex as excited as they are 
like, oh my God, you want to do this? Like I had a friend uh, that stayed with me for a period of time and she was into visual art. She's a, she is not into, but she is a visual artist. She lived in the house with me for a period of time. Um, she had this idea of doing group meditation. It's not something that she created here. She created it before she moved here. But we had an opportunity to see what does that look like for group meditation, improvisational, spiritual dance, get up, move. We put on some house music. Uh, deep soul gospel house music or whatever and there were 30 people here one time so it got big enough where she actually that theme hippens in the north end is a healing arts dojo and creative incubator so the idea for her to do group meditation and the dance and things like that and I did some name readings that was here and incubated the idea and then she ended up doing it several different times in the community at large so, yeah, so I do believe that to live up to my own name is to assist people with their ideas. You're constantly evolving and finding out things about yourself. That self-identity, self-definition, self-discovery leads to self-reclamation. And, you know, when you look at like these sociological models and people, you know, who are into community development, community organizing, you know, we always have this model in our head what community looks like and it looks like it's so big. But at the core of community, when you look at those diagrams, what's at the core? The individual. It's so important to to look at who you are. And I think that when people look at who they are, and then they think they actually journaled their thoughts because your thoughts, when you journal them and you write them down, they're snapshots of what's in your head. We have all these voices in our heads telling us what to do and where we're supposed to go and how we're supposed to be. That's well and fine. But filter all of that out. Go back to you. Meditate on yourself and do it through writing and then look at what's in your head. Make sense of it. You know, start from there. I appreciate that so much. You've been so amazing and and your your wisdom and your insight and even even the history, the personal history that you were able to share with us today. It just says so much. Rashawn, thank you so much for your time and your energy and your beautiful smile. Thank you so much. Oh, you're more than welcome. You're more than welcome. Like I said, it's been an honor and a privilege and I absolutely love and adore you and I champion you. Thank you right now at coffee break (laughs) ah yes bye bye honey